I'm not going to preach on the gospel, but once again it occurred to me hearing it that um, we hear the term son of man used a lot in the, the New Testament, in the gospels, and Jesus referring to the son of man. And there have been 17 tons of biblical scholarship written about what in the world the Son of Man means. And one of the things the Son of Man means could mean you and me, we're all the Son of Man, or the Son of, you know. So what, by extension, that means is, is that Jesus is going to go through deep suffering and death. It's part of the, the, the way in which the Christian narrative. But I'm going to say a little something about this in a few minutes Uh, All of us have gone through deep suffering in one form or another. Grief, loss, abuse, all kinds of things that happen to us. So um, we're all the son of man. Or I don't know how to say that being gender neutral, but some of you will tell me at the door, no doubt. And it will be a help to know that. So... I did everything in my power to try to get out of preaching about the first reading from Proverbs about the good wife. I've been a pastor for a while and I've had, actually had people in my office talk about their family of origin and say when my dad was concerned that my mother was mad at him because of his behavior in one form or another, he'd sit at the dinner table and read from Proverbs about the good wife. Usually in his cups. So, before I talk about the thing, the reading itself, just to, by way of reminder, we've been reading for the last three weeks from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the oldest book or piece of writing in what Christians call, as they divide up what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, as the wisdom literature. It has a different name and a different ordering in the way the canon of, of the Hebrew Bible works. But in our tradition, as Christian people, we call this the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Those are all part of the wisdom literature, and they sort of seem to some people to be speaking about things that are very uh, horizontal and not vertical, if you know what I mean. It's about human wisdom and all of that sort of thing. And some people say, well, you know, but it's very important. So wisdom in Hebrew is a a feminine word. And in Greek, because there's a Greek New Old Testament, is a feminine word. So if you ever meet a woman named Sophia, the word is wisdom. That's what it means. And so we think about that, and we've been reading from a section of Proverbs which has been talking about woman wisdom, if you translated the Hebrew in some places literally. And so today, uh, before I say that, uh, the reading itself, the poem of the good wife, is an acrostic And what that means is that each verse of the poem begins with a different Hebrew letter. 
Now, we have something like that in, in the prayer book. If you open the prayer book to Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm of the 150, you will see that there are sections of Psalm 119. And each section is on the, in the top. It has the Hebrew letter. It's an acrostic. So this whole section, each verse of the psalm, begins with this aleph, okay, or something like that. So it, t- it tells us something about what it is. Why would we have acrostics in the Hebrew Bible? I suspect, I suspect that's because it's an aid to memory. We often forget that uh, in the ancient world, the, 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 the place where the Hebrew scriptures emerged from, and indeed the ancient Near East where the Christian scriptures emerged from in Greek, most people could not read or write. And so what do you fall back on if you can't read or write? You fall back on your memory. So there were people who were able to memorize large sections. That's why the Psalms are so important to Christian people as well as Jews. Because they're, they're memorized and they're, they're somehow internalized that way. And there's still parts of the world where that is done. I suspect that most of the people who are giving us the business these days in the, in the Middle East, the people that are sort of in the leadership, you know, the imams, and very, they probably know the Quran by heart. By memory, you know, they can quote it. So in one sense, in the West and in the developed world and the less developed world, but people who are literate, uh, our memories are probably more deficient in that sense than they used to be. And probably it's also true that we're able to to call on that and to exercise that uh, sort of flabby muscle of the memory in a way that that's important. I believe, by the way, that when the Episcopal Church and other churches change their forms of worship, that's what annoys people the most, because they've got to memorize those parts of the liturgy that meant a lot to them, and so they just sort of were going by memory through this, and it became a container for their own personal prayer, right? So now when you have to think about it, it's annoying. It's annoying to do that until... It's repetitively done sufficiently that you now can do that with that, see? So that's important. So today we have this poem about the good wife. In Hebrew, it actually could be the strong woman. That's how you could translate that. Why would we call it then the good wife? Because that translation has been hallowed by usage. So here's a little factoid about biblical translation and uh, different versions. When somebody changes the version of the scriptures that we read, like the King James Bible, which is the authorized version for all, all Anglicans still, right? The King James Version, the authorized version, the AV. Uh, it has been part of, of, the, of our way of thinking and doing things for now nearly 500 years. It is a triumph of English literature. It is not idiomatic English. It wasn't idiomatic English when it was written. 
But most of us who are old enough now, often when we have a biblical quote that squirts out of our brain, it's from the King James. I quote from the King James. So uh, translators have that in mind too. So if you're going to have a different version, which is more readable because it's in English that's more idiomatic for our own time, they will leave some of these translations so that you, it's familiar to you. You know, there probably are other versions that say strong woman. But it's important because uh, we, we have to think about what this is driving at. I bit, we did some work in commentaries to try, to, to try and make sense of, of some of this. Uh, one commentator said, uh, it is unlikely that one can find a strong, capable, worthy woman. That's how it begins. <laughs> it is unlikely that one can find a strong, capable, worthy woman, and the capable wife is wholly defined from a male-identified point of view. That is the perspective of her fulfillment of roles that enable the lives of the men who depend on her. What man sitting in this church now has not benefited by the overfunctioning of the women in their lives? So, that may be one way to look at this. Carol Fontaine, who is a professor of Hebrew at uh, the Andover Newton Seminary in uh, Massachusetts, in Newton, Massachusetts. It's one of the premier mainline Protestant seminaries, I would say. Says this about this passage, and it will get to something I want to talk about. Nevertheless, the picture presented here in the reading acts as a corrective to the notion that women are dangerous beings who sap away men's lives and fortunes and may have been included precisely to counter such one-sided negative views seen earlier with a positive last word on the subject. So you've heard me say before in sermons, for example, talking about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, that one of the things that is delivered up to us in the Hebrew Bible is the way in which the God consciousness of the people develops and matures over time. And so people uh, change slowly in terms of being able to observe it by how the manners, morals, and customs of people change. They don't think the same way about things. And so their personal experience and the way in which they make sense of it, we'll talk about that in James in just a minute, uh, is, is an important thing. But, you know, you take two steps forward and three steps back sometimes. The public discourse in this country, uh, in this political, particular political cycle, has reached a new low. And some of the old thinking is now back. You know, people poo-poo political correctness, and sometimes it is annoying as all get out. But there's a reason for why we need, it's like the memorizing the liturgy. It's being reminded of certain things. 
Uh, that's why some people enjoy madmen so much in my generation, because they lived it. And some people won't even watch it because they lived it. Women, they won't do it. It's not that long ago, Edmund Burke, the famous conservative political philosopher in England in the 18th century, said, there's nothing shorter than the public's memory. There's nothing shorter than the public's memory. So, in evangelical circles these days, uh, unsophisticated and sophisticated, this is where I, I get a little concerned. You know, I'm not an evangelical. You all know that. But evangelicalism uh, has made a comeback in some places, and it's right in the center of the political discourse for many people. There is a way of looking at life or a, a thing that is used, a term, to describe the way in which men and women should relate to one another. And it's called complementarianism. Right? So they say that men and women are equal but they have different roles. And just as Carol Fontaine said, different roles uh, defined by the male-dominated perspective, right? I use a couple of biblical quotes uh, to support this, and it's not enough. And they talk about this. Well, what would that mean? Well, in the life of the church, in this complementarian view, women should exercise absolutely no positions of leadership in the church. They use First Thessalonians, you know, Paul saying, I never allow women to speak in the church. So that even means no, no, don't re no reading of lessons, certainly no preaching, and certainly no presiding at the liturgy you know, such as the liturgy is in evangelical circles. So they, they, they think that this is a view, and, and there's a lot of people who are part of this movement that are real surprises to me. And it's, an, it's a thing that sort of gives me pause, but nobody ever talks about that, even in a, in a media where we're saturated with this whole discourse and Everybody's rushing to be politically correct and so forth. Uh, it's not mentioned as a subtext in a, in a lot of this in a lot of this stuff. So the change that occurs on the manners, morals, and customs of people is gradual, but sometimes it can regress, and that's why people need to pay attention and to understand the, the significance of that. This produces, by the way, a point of view that some people believe that the biblical witness is absolutely of no value at all. No value at all. Particularly when it's interpreted, interpreted in this fashion. So, chew on that a little. James. The letter of James is not written to any particular group. It is sort of a general letter or sermon it was circulated. It probably circulated first in communities of Hellenized Jewish Christians. Keep that on ice so you can amaze your friends. 
and they were concerned about the internal life of their communities and how the spiritual condition of the individuals in these communities affected their corporate life and either enabled or challenged their ability to reach out in some fashion. And so James is speaking today about wisdom, which is a, speaks about it a lot in this, in this letter. And there are different kinds of wisdom. So he's going to speak about today wisdom that is not uh, life-giving, but wisdom that is. One of the ways that I've understood wisdom in my own life is what Edwin Friedman describes, who's a famous guy in, in church life. And he says that one of the ways to understand wisdom is the accumulated response to adversity. We're speaking here about practical wisdom, right? So, what have you learned? The Son of Man must suffer many things, right? What have you learned by that, in that process? Edwin Friedman was a rabbi. He was a congregational rabbi. And he was, for for over 35 years, a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so he, the last lecture I heard him give before I came here in 1993 was about his experience as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And he said, you know, I've been doing this now for 35 years and people come to see me and the stories they tell me would make your hair stand on end the things that people have been through, what their life has been like, their family of origin issues. And you know what? He said, I'm to the point now where I simply don't care. I don't want to hear all that. You know, there's some people that are cursed with perfect recall. Have you ever sat down with somebody like that? After a while, you're, gonna, you're going like this. And they're dwelling in the adversity. They're sitting. They're marinating in the adversity. So here's what he says. He says, I'm really not interested in all these details. It's too much information. Why and how are you still here? How are you still here? What have you done? Well or badly... To survive. You know, all of us have had to white knuckle this stuff uh, often. Sometimes we've had to sit in our room and cry about two or three times a day and then pull ourselves together and do stuff. Or we have begun to build this interior uh, spiritual strength in our emotional, spiritual, and mental life and also our physical condition, which influences this deeply, and to be able to now have the tools that allow us to move forward. And James is speaking about this. 
but he's also making has a it's also a commentary on the world the the what, what did it say the world's uh, entire harms you know you and i live in the silicon valley and uh, a lot of people here are like the story of the monkey with the nut in the jar right the monkey has put his hand in the jar to grab the nut and he's got hold of the nut and he begins to withdraw his hand and he can't get his hand out of the jar he's not able to get his hand out of the jar unless he lets go of the nut who's going to let go of the nut first okay james is talking about envy selfish ambition a lot of these kinds of things that uh, influence personal ambition, self-aggrandizement, selfishness, self-centered fear. All these values are exalted as being necessary for success. As a pastor, I've heard people say to me, you know, I just hate what I'm doing and the, things, the, the stuff I've got to do in my job in order to, to get ahead or to, to receive approval. And I've made a decision, a personal decision, that I'm going to do this just so long that I accumulate enough stuff that I can get out of it and leave it. That's one way. That's one way to do it, right? Or you can understand yourself in some way as being an instant of transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. You know, if you're a little, if you're calmer than a lot of other people in the face of the anxiety and reactivity of others, if you're less envious, if you've learned how to deal more effectively with the resentments that beset everybody, you know, some people have got some stuff they just won't let go of. They won't let it go. And I think we become addicted to that feeling. That's what makes it hard for us to let it go. Because George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers, a great blues band in the East, had a song years ago that was titled, You Go With What You Know. That's what we do. So James is giving us an alternative. And the alternative is that we need to cultivate internally pure intentions, peacefulness, gentleness, willingness to yield, being merciful, and good fruits. We believe as sacramental people in the Anglican Church, in the Episcopal Church, we believe that at our baptism we receive the Spirit of God and attached to that are what are called the fruits of the Spirit. Paul speaks of the fruits of the Spirit in his writings. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's one list. He adds other things in other places. And you know what? Without taking anything away from that list, where Paul got it? Paul got it from the practical wisdom of the world in which he inhabited. As a pious Jew, 
and as a Jew who lived in the diaspora in the Hellenistic culture. And if you ask somebody who lived in that culture, what are the things that a good and decent human being should do to pursue and gain excellence, arete in Greek, virtue, do these things, cultivate these things. So I use that, a list like that as a test. If I wake up in the morning, I don't do this as often as I should, and say, have I made any spiritual progress? How would I know? Because a lot of times we do make spiritual progress. We're all good people and we don't even recognize it, right? But if we find love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control easier to express... Then we have. Doesn't mean we're always going to succeed. You know? Christian people believe in progress, not perfection. And a lot of people have become sick or crazy pursuing perfection. And I've said this to you over and over again. In Matthew's Gospel, he says to his disciples, you must be perfect. That's the translation. Even as your father in heaven is perfect. And if you read it in the original, the word that's translated perfect in the authorized version and the other versions is mature. That's what the word means. Mature. Teleios. It means complete. It means whole. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's doable. At least more doable than perfect. Perfect just isn't possible. You know? A lot of people, as I say, become sick or crazy or upset or whatever, trying to be perfect. So James is saying to us that Pure intentions, peaceableness, gentleness, willingness to yield, being merciful, expressing these fruits of the Spirit are what's necessary to have a firm moral foundation in our lives and maybe to bring us a little bit more serenity. So, this week, give thanks for all the strong women that you have known in your life. And we guys, we should think of all the strong women whose overfunctioning has benefited us enormously. I think one of the reasons people like madmen, as these guys are all out having three martini lunches and doing all the stuff, and all the women back at the office are doing all of this in order to keep everything functioning, right? And you're coming back half lit and spending the rest of the afternoon sort of functioning. It's the way it was when I started out in business. So give thanks for the women who've held things together but are, have also uh, blessed us with their wisdom. And what James said in the end of this reading is, is very important in terms of our practices and habits. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Amen.